All right. Well, it's good to be together. What a beautiful day. And uh, I wanted to say welcome. I, we have a few guests here that I can see. We're so glad that you could be with us today. And I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Leviticus. And we're going to be looking to Leviticus chapter 8, but we're really going to be surveying Leviticus 8 all the way to chapter 10. As we continue, Leviticus on the lawn, or as we call it, uh, elementary. This is our elementary series. Because as we look to the law, we learn elementary lessons about the Christian faith. Now, one of the challenges that I've discovered as I've been trying to prepare these sermons, and just as even as you read through the book of Leviticus, one of the challenges is that the law was meant to be immersive. It was meant to be immersive, meaning it wasn't just something you heard. It was something that the Israelites saw, something they touched, something they smelt. In fact, something that they ate often. And here we are, we open up the text and we read these words, but for us, it's, it's almost like it's lost on us because we're not able to immerse ourselves that way. So I want to invite you to engage your imagination with me this morning. Let's do our best to try and see what the Israelites saw as we come to these texts that feel somewhat foreign to us. So imagine with me for a moment that you're an Israelite. You're an Israelite and you're camped here next to Mount Sinai. You've got, you're with your people. There's like almost a million of your people. There's an, an enormous amount of people. You're in the wilderness. It's, a, it's almost a ruckus, right? And, and to your left here, you've got Mount Sinai. And just days ago, that was covered in a cloud of glory. And there were flashes of lightning, and you could hear peals of thunder. And you knew if we even touched this mountain, we're dead. And on top of this mountain, Moses is meeting with the Lord on our behalf. And in fact, when Moses came down from the mountain the first time, his face was shining with glory, so much so that the crowd went into chaos. Everybody was, we were frightened, we were horrified. And so now whenever Moses comes down, he has to wear a veil because there's so much glory there. But something has happened recently. The glory has moved from Mount Sinai down into the camp. And the glory hovers over the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle, you can imagine these, these large curtains that are encasing this area. Maybe let's just envision it's the size of this field. And that's the tabernacle complex. It's surrounded by Levites with sharp spears, making sure that nobody enters into the tabernacle unworthily. Inside the tabernacle, you've got the altar where the sacrifices are offered up. You've got this basin where the sacrifices are washed. And then there's this tent of meeting where the glory of God now resides with his people. Inside the tent is the Ark of the Covenant. And, and so this is the scene. The Israelites are seeing this, and Moses has been interceding for them all this time, glowing face Moses. But they realize that Moses is just a man, and in fact, Moses someday is going to die. So what happens when we lose Moses? How do we come before God? Who's going to teach us? Who's going to make sure that we don't get this wrong so that we're struck down by the glory of God? Who's going to offer the sacrifices? See, in chapters 1 to 7, we've been talking about how the sacrifices were presented. Well, here in chapters 8 to 10, we turn our attention to the, the leaders who are going to offer up the sacrifices for the people. We find the ordination of the priests. So that's what we're finding in our text. These are the leaders who are going to go before us, who are going to step into Moses' place. Now, in terms of application, obviously, as we read about the priesthood, well, I shouldn't say obviously, you likely know, but let me remind you, Jesus is now our great high priest. And so when we read the book of Hebrews, we hear about how Jesus fulfills all of these things that the, the priests were meant to do, but ultimately fell short. 
right? Jesus is the great high priest. He doesn't need to make a sin offering for himself, right? He intercedes continually on our behalf rather than going in once a year. And we're going to talk about that in later weeks. So, of course, we hear Jesus when we look at this text. But what I'd like to do with you this morning is to ask the question, what does the law teach us about leadership? Because while, yes, we do see Jesus, we're also meant to see a model for, for what godly leadership looks like. So let's look and let's ask, what does the law teach us about leadership? I'm going to pull out six lessons here. I realize that's five. Six lessons here. The first lesson is this. Leaders are appointed by God. So if you look with me in the text, look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bowl of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So Moses says, what I want you to do now is I want you to take Aaron and his sons. Let's just note the fact that there is no election in this process, in this ordination ceremony. And I want to say that because as Canadians, right, we are enamored with our own governing structures. You know, we love it. We love democracy. I love democracy too, to be clear. But this is a very big deal. They are appointing the high priest. He's going to be the one who represents us. If he gets this wrong, we might all be struck down. This is a really important figure. So you would almost imagine on a day like this that they're going to get everyone together and they're going to say, put forward your 10 best candidates and let's debate it out and then we'll have an election. Whoever we agree on, we'll put him up. But no, God steps in and he says to Moses, that one, Aaron and his sons, you set them apart. Then you gather all the people and you bring them and you tell them who I've appointed to lead over you. Didn't draw straws, no aptitude test. That's interesting, right? And, and that challenges some of the ways that we think about leadership. In the same way, the Lord identified the Levites to serve in the tabernacle, to function as the, the priest for the nation. In the same way, when they wanted a king, the Lord set apart Saul. Then he went ahead and he set apart David later on. This is how God works in his kingdom. Leadership in the kingdom of God is given not taken. That's important for us to learn. And that keeps us from being those who try to grasp and seize and take leadership for ourselves. Because we find that in the Bible too, and it never ends well. Disclaimer. Remember when Miriam was upset? And she said, you're not the only prophet, Moses. I can speak on behalf of God too. And then God struck her with leprosy. Do you remember Absalom, David's son, when he, he used manipulation to take hold of the throne, and he thought he had received it. But the Lord wouldn't allow him to sit there. And eventually that story ended with him being run through by three spears. Or Jezebel, who connived her way to the throne. But she was eventually thrown out of a tower and eaten by dogs. These stories all end in ruin and destruction. And we're meant to learn from them. When God's people need leadership, God acts. God appoints. He knows what his people need and he provides accordingly. They needed a prophet, he gave them Moses. They needed a priesthood. He gave them Aaron. That's what he does. It's true in the Old Covenant and church. It's true today. We read in Ephesians 4, And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Why? Why did he give us these leaders? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body 
of Christ. Old Testament and new, leaders are a gift. And I want to pause, I want to make sure we hear that because I do know that we're inclined, and I feel it, I'm a Canadian, we're inclined to resist and resent leaders. And in fact, I don't even know if that's Canadian, I think that's just our own pride and our own sinful hearts. We're inclined to, to resent leaders, and we live in a world that resents leaders. But God says, no, these leaders are a gift for you to equip you, to build you up. And on that note, I want to stop because I feel like it's an appropriate day for this. I wrote this in my AGM report, but I, I want to stop and just publicly say, reflect back over the last eight and a half years when Cornerstone planted us. That board of elders who has been praying for us week after week and supporting us and sending down people to encourage us and to build us up, that leadership team was a gift from God for us. And what a gift they were. I hope that you take time to thank the Lord, and I hope that you take time to send them a letter and thank them. They provided us amazing leadership for the last eight and a half years. And Pastor Paul in particular, I just think back to all those weeks when he would preach at Cornerstone, and then he would hop in his car, and he'd drive down here, and he'd preach to our, this little group of people in that hot gymnasium, and he'd preach week after week after week, and he equipped leaders knowing that one day they would spurn off. What a gift that was to us. Amen? Amen. What a gift it was. Let's make sure that we don't forget that, and let's make sure that we, we show honor where honor is due. That was from God for our good, and we're, we're where we are today because of that gift that we received from the Lord. And as this leadership team tonight receives the baton, I pray that we would be half the blessing to this people that the leadership team that went before us was. It's a gift from God, Old Testament and New. Second, the law teaches us that leaders must first be followers. As you read through these three chapters, you're going to find a phrase, at least in the ESV, it's rendered this way, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. You'll, if you're reading an ESV Bible, you're going to find that 16 times in the text. Now, why is that? Is that because Moses didn't have a good thesaurus? Couldn't think of any good synonyms? Didn't know how to spice it up? No, Moses was intentional, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He was intentional. In these three chapters, as we're talking about the leaders of God's people, there was a common refrain as the Lord commanded. Who are the priests? They're the as the Lord commanded people. They're the people who do just what the Lord says. They're the people who don't step to the left, don't step to the right, don't bring novelty. No, we do as the Lord commanded. That's what the priesthood was to be all about. And Moses knew this from example, from his firsthand experience. If you remember that scene when he was in the, in the wilderness and the people were grumbling again, they were all grumbling at Moses, right? He he led a, I mean, there was, it was an enormous crowd. So you can imagine the grumbling probably happened a lot. And the one day they're grumbling for water and Moses comes to the Lord and he intercedes on their behalf. And God says, okay, I'm going to give them water. So speak to the rock, Moses, and I'll bring forth water. So Moses went out and the people are murmuring and grumbling. And he says, you want water? And he, he, in his frustration, he strikes the rock two times and water comes forth. But God is not pleased with Moses because Moses has stepped out of the commandment and he's added his own twist. And do you remember what the consequence was? Numbers 20, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. God says, Moses, I, I brought the water from the rock for the people, but you failed in that moment. You obscured the lesson that I was teaching, and you put it in your own hands. Therefore, you're not going to be the man who leads them 
into the promised land. Moses understood this. And as Moses is instituting the new priests, he tells them, as the Lord commanded. That's your motto. That's your ambition. That's your life, priest, as the Lord commanded. Now, a priest who understood his own sinfulness, a priest who understood the immense glory and holiness of God, and a priest who understood the miracle it was that God dwelt with this whole unholy people, that priest would never swerve, right? That priest would be careful to observe God's commandments. As one commentator notes, one's approach to God is the surest dissection and deepest revelation of the heart. The way you approach God says everything about what you believe about God. Therefore, leaders need to approach the Lord with reverence. Leaders need to be students of the word to structure their lives around what God says. Leaders need to lead the way and set the tone in regard to obedience. And of course, we're thinking about, you're probably thinking about leaders in the church right now, as you should, but can I just hammer in? Leaders in the home, hear that. If you want to lead in your home, get the Bible off of the shelf and put your nose into it and get it into your heart and into your mind. And, and don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word, as James says. Live it out. Let your kids see that as they follow you, you follow Christ. If you want to be a leader, that's what spiritual leadership looks like. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church and he said, you be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. See, I am not a leader unless I am following Christ. Leaders are first followers. Third, the law teaches us that leaders represent their people. So flip ahead with me in chapter 8 to verses 6 to 7. In verses 6 to 7, here's what we read. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and he washed them with water. And he, he put the coat on him, and he tied the sash around his waist. And he clothed him with the robe, and he put the ephod on him, and he tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. Now, if I can confess, just as a young man reading that, this is the part of Leviticus where I start to struggle a bit. You wonder, what, why am I learning all this? What does this matter? And the reality is, as Baptists, the idea of uniforms is very foreign to us. Right? We don't, we don't have uniforms as Baptists. But you realize, uniforms communicate a really important lesson. Now, you probably know this, whether or not you know it. Judges wear their black gowns, and that uniform communicates something when you step into the courtroom. It might be Timmy Thompson up there sitting in the judge's throne, but when you step into the courtroom and you see him in the black gown, you realize it's not Timmy Thompson that's weighing in. Like We're going to put the evidence on the table, but we're not going to get Timmy's best opinions. No, we're going to hear from Mr. Justice Thompson today. Because Timmy has resolved to leave his personality at the door and his preferences, and he has resolved to uphold the law today. I'm coming before the officer, not the man today. And the uniform communicates that. We have a number of police officers. It's the same idea. You put on that uniform, and people are meant to see the office, not the person. And that's what we're meant to see in this text as the Israelites came and they saw Aaron and they saw him dressed as a high priest, they saw the office, not the man. Truth be told, I wonder if we wouldn't be well served to reclaim some of that in our modern day churches. Though I'm not excited about the idea of a uniform, it, isn't it true that sometimes we're inclined to see the man, not the office? And churches go astray when we do that. 
See, when Aaron, when Aaron died and his oldest son succeeded him, the congregation coming to bring their offering would have been hard-pressed to spot a difference. Why? Because they'd come in and they would see the high priest dressed in his priestly garb, performing his priestly rituals. Nothing would have changed except the face behind the garb. That's it. It was important. Now, before we move on, I want to draw your attention to one unique aspect of the high priest's uniform. Some of you might know this. I apologize if you do, but I, I imagine many of you don't. So he wore an ephod. An ephod, maybe you don't even know what that is. An ephod is a breastplate. So you can imagine he's wearing this breastplate, and elsewhere we learn that it had 12 precious stones on it. So you can imagine three, 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 three. 12 precious stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, why did he need to wear this? He wore this because when he went into the presence of God, he was, he was doing so on behalf of, for his people. When he went before the Lord, he went before the Lord for them. He made sacrifices for them. He woke up each morning and he washed himself and he put on his attire and he stepped into his office. Why? So as to represent them before the Lord. Leaders are for their people. And when leaders lose sight of this truth, they're no longer leading. And we've seen that in the world all too many times. Leaders exist because God loves his people. Now, every Monday night as your leadership team here gathers, we open up the books and we pray for our membership by name. And we pray for your kids by name. And we talk about where we're weak and we make strategies for how we can teach into that and how we can equip the saints for the work of ministry. The leadership team here exists so as to see God glorified in your life. Leaders exist for the people. That's, that's what it's all about. And... That's a frightening truth because the next thing the law teaches us about leadership is that leaders are redeemed sinners. See, Leviticus 8 isn't the first time that we're introduced to Aaron as the future high priest. In fact, we find in Exodus 29, we're, we're told that Aaron is going to be the, the next high priest. He's going to be the first high priest. But then something happens between Exodus 29 and Leviticus 8. Do you remember what happened? In Exodus 32... Moses is on top of Mount Sinai. Remember that mountain to our left, that glowing mountain? Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And the future high priest, Aaron, is with the people. And the people say, we, wanna, we want an idol, Aaron. And so they're giving him their gold earrings, and they're giving him their gold bracelets, and they're giving him their gold necklaces, and Aaron throws it into a fire, and he fashions for them a golden calf. Here we find the, the first high priest of the people helping them to break the first and the second commandment. So you can imagine, now as we find ourselves in Leviticus 8, and Moses is preparing for the ordination ceremony, there's probably some murmuring in the camp, probably some people whispering and speculating, who do you think the new high priest is going to be? Because Aaron, Aaron has obviously disqualified himself from the office. Who, who do you think Moses is going to bring instead? And yet, lo and behold, Aaron is still God's man. That failure was actually used by God to teach a valuable and powerful lesson. And you might miss this if you're moving quickly through the text. So let's pause and let's see it. In chapter 8, as you read through chapter 8, you'll notice that Moses is the one who's leading all the ceremonies. 
Because in chapter 8, Aaron is not yet the high priest. So Moses is functioning as the de facto high priest. He's leading in the sacrifices. He's setting the tone. But in chapter 9, the ordination ceremony has been completed. And Moses is now, Aaron, sorry, is officially the high priest of the people. And in chapter 9, we find him do his first act as the new high priest. Look at verse 2. Moses says to this new high priest, Aaron, he says, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. Now, this isn't surprising, per se. New leaders always needed to go before and offer a, a burnt offering for their sin, a sin offering. That wasn't uncommon. But as we learned two weeks ago, the typical sin offering was a bull. If you could afford it, you were to offer a bull. But here, Moses tells Aaron, not you, Aaron, you're going to bring a bull calf. And you're going to lead that calf through the people. And you're going to go and you're going to lay that calf on the altar and you're going to sacrifice it. And so that's what we see in verse 8. Aaron drew near to the altar and he killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Now, when we fly through that as, as modern day readers, we might... We might miss the significance, but Aaron did not miss the significance. I can assure you of that. The Israelites did not miss the significance. Here is the man who had fashioned a golden calf just, who knows, weeks ago, months ago. I'm not entirely sure, but it's fresh in everybody's minds. And now here he is coming before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Holy, Holy, Holy God with his calf offering, laying his hand on it, acknowledging, I am a sinner, God, killing the calf, being redeemed. See, all Christian leaders outside of Christ, we're all redeemed sinners. We walk with a limp from day one. And from day one, the message was clear for the Israelites. Aaron is, is just a redeemed sinner like us. The limp humbles us. The limp reminds us of our weakness. And the limp causes us to lean even harder on Christ. That's true, Old Testament and New. Leaders are redeemed sinners. And therefore, the fifth thing we learn, leaders must be consecrated Leaders must be consecrated. Now, that, that word to consecrate is perhaps foreign to you. To consecrate something is to set it apart for holy use. And so as Aaron stepped into the prophets of high priest, he was devoting himself to a life of holy service in the tabernacle, a life of otherness. And this separation was symbolized in the ordination ceremony. So if you look back at chapter 8, verse 12, here, this is that seven-day-long ceremony. P.S., it was a very long ceremony. I was ordained last year, and it was about an hour and a half, which felt like an eternity in the moment because I was stressed, and it was a big day. This is a seven-day ceremony as Moses is ordaining Aaron and his sons. And we come to a point in the ceremony, and maybe let's visualize again. So just imagine you're a representative of your people. You're representing your tribe, so you've been invited to come to this tabernacle. So you come, and you see the, the Levites with their spears, and you approach and you say, I, I was sent here to represent my tribe. And they move the spears and you're allowed to come into this tabernacle complex. And as you come in, you see the crowd and the whole crowd is there murmuring, just waiting to see what will happen. Waiting with anticipation to see who God's man will be. And there's Moses with Aaron and his sons. And Moses takes out this anointing oil and he starts to anoint the tabernacle. And he goes over and he anoints the altar where the sacrifices are made. He dumps seven times, he anoints it with oil. And then he goes over and he anoints the basin. And then he goes to Aaron and it says he dumps the oil right over Aaron's head. 
So you can imagine this anointing oil is just dripping off of Aaron's nose. And you understand the symbolism if you're standing there that day. You realize that Aaron is now a part of this tabernacle complex. Like he is now set apart just as much as that altar is set apart for holy use. Then Moses comes and he brings, what is it, a bull, a ram? A ram. So he brings out a ram for the ordination offering. And he brings it before Aaron and his sons, and they all lay their hands on it. And then this ram is slain. And Moses kneels down, and he, he gets this blood on his fingers. And then he puts the blood on the right earlobe of Aaron. And then he puts it on Aaron's right thumb. And then he puts it on Aaron's right toe. And he kneels down, and he does the same thing for all of Aaron's sons. And then finally he takes the blood, and he goes to the altar, and he sprinkles the blood on the altar. And again, it's tricky when you're reading it, but if you're standing there and you're watching this, you get it. Aaron and his sons have been set apart. They, have been, they are now part of this whole sacrificial system. They are, they are built into it, consecrated, made holy for holy use. That's what it meant. And you, maybe you ask, why the ear, why the thumb, why the toe? I think one commentator gets it just right. He says, the priest must have consecrated ears ever to listen to God's holy voice, consecrated hands at all times to do holy deeds, and consecrated feet to walk ever more in holy ways. See, as Christians, we think about leadership differently, or at least we should. We don't need more charismatic leaders. We don't need more fiscally prudent leaders. We don't need more intelligent leaders. What we need are more holy leaders. Now, God uses all those other things, praise God. But what we need to prioritize and value above all else is leaders who are set apart for holy work. Leaders who say that these ears, these hands, these feet, all of this is dedicated to his work and his service. That's what leadership looks like in the King of God. They must be consecrated. And finally... The law teaches us that leaders are held to a higher standard. That's the final episode in this three-chapter long scene. So if you look at chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, here we find this this jarring scene. Let me just read it for you. I'm just going to read the first three verses. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. You know, most translations actually just render that literally. The Hebrew just says, And Aaron was quiet. I think that captures the moment better. Aaron was quiet. Now, I want you just to rewind. Rewind one scene. So that we've got that scene in our mind, but just, just before that, the ordination ceremony is done, and it was a glorious event, and the, the whole ritual is done, and so Aaron and Moses now go into the tent of meeting, Moses with this new high priest, into the tent of meeting, and do you remember what happened? fire burst out from the tent of meeting and consumed the offering as a display of God's approval that this is it. You've got it right. You have obeyed me just to the T and I'm pleased. And so this fire burst forth, consumes the offering and it wasn't lost on the people. 
they were in awe. They fell on their faces and they worshiped God. And you can just imagine them saying, this is it. We needed a leader and God has provided and he approves. And look at this majestic display of his approval. Loved it. You can just imagine Aaron went to bed that night, probably horrified, but also probably marveling at this amazing responsibility that he'd been given. Like, you know, God, I cannot believe that you have given me this honor to represent my people before you, to intercede on their behalf. Thank you, God. Next morning, Aaron's sons get up and they put on their new attire and they put, grab their new censers and they mosey on into the tabernacle and they're, who knows? The Bible doesn't tell us what, what it was that they got wrong. All we know is that they didn't obey God's instructions. You know, it's as if they walked in and said, wow, we get to come in here now. We should offer up some sacrifices. What a privilege it is for us. Let's, why don't we burn some incense before the Lord? And so they come in and they're burning their incense and it was not what the Lord commanded. They had forgotten the motto of the priest. Remember, as the Lord commanded. But now they're just winging it. And whereas before, God had sent forth fire to consume the offering, to show his approval, here fire bursts forth from the Lord in wrath and consumes these priests who had forgotten that their job was to listen to the Lord. And here's the scene that sometimes, I don't know that we visualize the way we should. Just imagine, these are, these are people. Moses and Aaron, hearing this calamity, rush in. And Aaron looks down at his two sons, probably unrecognizable. And Moses stands there with his brother. And you can imagine there's trembling, there's fear, there's tears. I I imagine Moses, because Moses speaks up in this moment. I would imagine it's through tears. Moses turns to his brother Aaron as he looks at his nephews. And he says, this is what the Lord said. This is what the Lord said. I'll be seen as holy before my people. God will be seen as holy. And those who are closest to his presence must not obscure that holiness. Now, if you remember, that's almost verbatim what God said to Moses when he had struck the rock and he had experienced his consequence. God said to him, I will be seen as holy, Moses. Moses turns to his brother and he says, this, this is what we've been saying. Aaron couldn't grieve in that moment because Aaron understands, right? I will not obscure the holiness of God. If Aaron were to rip his robes and put on sackcloth and put on ashes and all of the grieving things that you would do, if he were to do that in that moment, it would say to the whole community, I, the high priest, don't approve of what God has done. But he couldn't do that because he did approve. God had done what was right. And so it says, Aaron was quiet. He's quiet. They had the cousins of these men come in, carry them away in their robes, take them outside of the camp. And Aaron stayed in his role as the high priest, leading on behalf of his people before God. And he would not allow his grief, his response, to obscure the glory of God in what had taken place. One commentator notes, All saw their presumption. All must see their doom. All saw the law broken by their hands. All must see the broken law honored in their death. See, leaders who sin publicly need to be rebuked publicly. And that is true, Old Testament and New. 
when Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, who was overseeing the church in Ephesus, he told him, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. See, we said leaders are redeemed sinners. That's true. But sometimes leaders fall back into their sin. And when they do, it cannot be taken lightly because God does not take it lightly. The stakes are too high. On day two, Aaron learned an unforgettable lesson. The stakes are higher in leadership. Aaron learned that the closer a man is to God, the more attention he must pay to holiness and to the glory of God. Now listen, a a pornography addiction in a young man is a terrible, dangerous thing. But a pornography addiction in the life of an elder of a church can bring a congregation down. Have to take it seriously. The higher your influence is, the more people who look to you and expect you to resemble Christ to them and to teach them God's ways, the higher the stakes are if you succumb to sin and hypocrisy. Now, I imagine that first and foremost, we're hearing that through the framework of church leadership, as we should. But I want to just make sure that we don't let ourselves off the hook here because some of us aren't in church leadership. I want you to hear this as a parent today. Parents leading in your home, listen closely. If you want to shipwreck the faith of your children, play with sin and try to keep it a secret. If you want to shipwreck the faith of your children, toy with sin in your life and live with an unrepentant heart. The stakes are higher. The little ones are watching. Parents, mentors, employers, elders, pastors, if you are in a position of leadership, you need to understand that your sin is not just your sin. And God will hold you to a higher standard. He will be seen as holy in your life. Hear that? Listen, God will be seen as holy in your life. There's no question about that. Here's the question. Will God be seen as holy in your careful obedience to his instructions? Or will God be seen as holy in his judgment on your arrogance and rebellion? He'll be seen as holy. That's what the law teaches us about leadership. It's a heavy lesson. And we've done a lot of application along the way. So as we conclude this morning, I want to pull out just two implications that we haven't touched on yet. Two implications that I feel like we can't, we can't move on unless we touch on these. So, so bear with me quickly. Two implications. First, in light of all that we've seen, please, please, please pray for the leaders in your life. Leadership matters. It does. Good leadership is a tremendous blessing. Bad leadership is a curse. It matters. One backslidden elder could devastate a congregation. One pastor who indulges in novelty and tries to go his own way can can destroy and erase years of faithful history in a church. Listen, the YMCA used to be a Christian institution. The United Church used to be the, the bastion for evangelicalism in Canada. It doesn't take long for the trajectory to turn. And that happens when bad leaderships are given, bad leaders are given the reign. Tonight at our first AGM, we're going to be affirming our elder team. Listen, if we get that vote wrong, even once, we will see terrible consequences in the life of this little congregation. 
come to that meeting ready. Come to that meeting prayerfully. If you've got questions, you ask those questions. If you need to corner an elder today and say, listen, look me in the eye. Are you, are you ready for this? You do that. I'm sorry, elders. You do that. Ask them. Ask me. Pry in. Make sure. We're one bad elder team away from destruction. That's just the truth. Pray. Pray for our leaders. And then, please, once you've appointed these leaders, continue to pray. Pray for those who are leading in this church. Pray that we would be wise as we try to navigate the headwinds of our culture. This is a difficult time to lead. Pray for us, for our families, as we try to navigate how to be a good elder but also a good husband. How to be a good elder but but also not an absent dad. And some days the balance is really hard. Pray for us. Pray that we wouldn't ever fall into grumbling or bitterness or discouragement when it gets tough. Pray that we wouldn't ever indulge little pet sins. Pray for the And I feel compelled to say, please pray for parents. And, and in particular, I want to lean in. Please pray for dads. It's been heavy on my heart. Pray for fathers. Many of you didn't have good godly examples in your life. I know that. And it's probably a frightening thing to, to feel the weight of this leadership that you're supposed to resemble in your family, and yet you don't have an example to look to. I, I get that. And, and probably some days you feel sorry for yourself and you think, this is too hard. I get it. But I want you to hear this. It's not an excuse. You can't let yourself off the hook. Your sin will have generational consequences on your children. It's, it's the truth. So you've got to put away the temper tantrums, put away the lust, put away the angry outbursts, put away the rebellious spirit. You've got to put it away. And we as a church family are committed to praying for you, dads, as you take on that mantle of leadership in your homes. We're praying for you. But please, oh please, take that deadly seriously. And I'm out of time, I know, but this is, I want to conclude on this last note. We have to land here. In light of all that we've unpacked today, hear this. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Because listen, he's the only leader who will never, ever, ever fail you. Perhaps your father did set a lousy example for you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. As you look to Christ, you will see how the perfect balance of, of power and mercy, right, of, of justice and kindness, you'll see it held in that perfect tension. Look to Jesus. Look at how Jesus engages with the children when he's exhausted. Learn from him. Look to Jesus. Watch what happens when he's taught his disciples a lesson and a lesson and a lesson, and they persist in getting it wrong. Watch his patience. Fix your eyes on Jesus and learn from him. Perhaps you've been stung by church leaders. Perhaps you've watched people who you trusted in, people who who had maybe they even led you to Christ, and you watched as their lives crumbled under hidden sin. And you feel disillusioned. And I'm sorry, and that never should have happened. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Even if the person who led you to Christ was a sham, and their life was a joke, and it's all been exposed, you know what? Jesus is not a joke. He's not a sham. And if you are founded on him, if you are rooted in him, you will stand. Even if all of the leaders in your life were a mess, if your eyes are fixed on Christ, you will stand.
He's the sinless, self-sacrificing Savior of your soul. He knows you. He loves you. He's redeemed you. He's with you. And if and when everything else around you gives way, if Christ is your cornerstone, if he is your foundation, if he's your solid rock that you're standing on, then you will stand. So leaders are a gift. Hear that. Leaders are a gift from God for you to equip you. But we live in a fallen world, and sometimes those leaders don't measure up. They're redeemed sinners, every one of them. So pray for them urgently. Hold them accountable when necessary. Honor them as they carry this burden, as they lead on your behalf. And in the midst of it all, fix your eyes on Jesus. Lock on to him, the only leader who will never, ever, ever let you down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you, and it is an honor and a joy to be your children. I'm so thankful for your word, God. You teach us week after week. Lord, we just, we just turn to what's next, and Lord, you meet us in our need, and we need to hear this. Lord, we all have ideas of leadership that are ingrained in us from the culture, ingrained in us from our upbringing. Lord, we all come to this with our preconceived ideas. Thank you for speaking your truth to us. Lord, I pray that you'd apply it to our hearts. Lord, help each and every one of us as we seek to be leaders. Lord, you've made us to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so for each and every one of us, there is some application that we need to see in our lives. I think of our young people who are here today, who are perhaps you've made them to be leaders in their circle of friends. God, help them to be godly leaders. Lord, I think of the mothers in this room who are in this room, in this field, who are, who are day by day teaching their kids the gospel and faithfully trying to build them up in the home. And in the midst of their exhaustion, they're trying to set an example. God, would you bolster them and encourage them? I think of those in our church who have taken on the mantle of mentorship and they're mentoring others. Perhaps they're seeking to be disciple makers and they've got people looking to them. And maybe it's in the workplace, Lord. You've got people here who are over staff teams and who are, who are tasked with trying to be a, a good leader in a challenging season. I think of our fathers. I think of the elders. I think of the pastor here. Every one of us, God, acknowledges we need you. Who is sufficient for this? Who is sufficient for what you've called us to? Lord, we are weak. We're dust. We're frail. We need you. So would you lead us? Lord, would you keep our eyes fixed on you? And as you put the mantle of leadership onto some of us and in various capacities, I pray that we would evermore just trust in you, lean on you. God, as we walk with a limp, as we look back to who we were, as we confess with the Apostle Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. As we see and feel that, I pray that we would sense we are redeemed, we are washed by the blood of Christ, and we are set apart for this holy work. And the God who has given us this assignment will hold us fast. Help us to set our feet on the rock, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' saving, powerful name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us? Would you stand with us as we respond?